Um, I wasn't fully prepared for that. Um, it's one of those things where um, when you hear a brother that you love and respect um, speak truth and encouragement over you, um, particularly as men in our culture, we don't have enough opportunities where that happens. Um, so I'm very thankful for Luke. I'm thankful for you guys for allowing me to be here uh, today. I'm thankful to do life with a brother um, like Luke and Jamie. I'm um, so excited that you guys are going to hear from him in a couple of weeks. I mean, when I grow up, I want to have a heart that works like Jamie Nettles. And uh, you guys are going to be incredibly blessed by him uh, coming in the next couple of weeks as well. Uh, so again, thank you guys for, uh, for allowing me to be here, be with you. Um, just last week, uh, I was down in southwest Alabama uh, in a small town where I grew up. I got to the privilege of preaching last week in the church I grew up in. Uh, it, it's a little bit unnerving to preach to folks that change your diapers. There's still some of them around. Uh, and I'm, I'm proclaiming truth from Scripture to little old ladies that taught me the truths of Scripture from their flannel boards. Um, and in Sunday school, and if you grew up like I did in the small rural Southern Baptist church, we went back. Sunday school wasn't enough, so we went back Sunday night for training union, like old school. Um, so grew up there, and it was just a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of nostalgia when you go back to your hometown, when you go back to your home church, especially when you're able to preach there, just remembering uh, and talking through memories with family. Um, every Sunday growing up, we would do the same thing. We'd wake up, we'd go to Sunday school, we'd go to church, uh, we would hear the word proclaimed, we would sing praises to Jesus from these old school, like used to, we would take all of our songs and put them in books, and then we'd like open them up, and they were like hymnals. You had them all in, in one book. Uh, and we would sing from those, and then we would, we would come home, and I am absolutely convinced that somewhere along the line, my mother acquired some form of sanctified witchcraft. Uh, because as soon as we got home, a fully cooked hot meal was on the table. I knew she'd been at church with us the whole time. I'm not sure how that uh, like kind of bed knobs and broomsticks kind of thing was going on. Um, uh, but we did that this past weekend, got home, ate lunch. And when I was younger, uh, after lunch, after the dishes had been cleaned away and the food put away, uh, my dad would do the same thing every Sunday. He would, wake up, he would get up uh, from the lunch table there. He would go into the living room to where his um, uh, avocado green vinyl chair was there in the living room. And he would sit down uh, in that chair and he would pick up the mobile press register. Uh, the newspaper that we got from Mobile, and he would open it up and he would take out from the newspaper there my favorite section of the newspaper, not the sports section, that came later. But when I was younger, my favorite section of the newspaper was the comic strips, the Sunday funnies. And my dad would sit down in, uh, in his, uh, I'm still amazed that our vinyl furniture matched the color of our kitchen appliances, that old school avocado green. He would sit down and he would open up the funny papers and myself, I'm the oldest of three, myself and my sister and my brother would line the arms of that chair there and my dad would read through the funny papers with us. And we would cackle and we would howl and we would laugh to, uh, to Beetle Bailey and Hagar the Horrible, and Snuffy Smith, and Peanuts, and BC. 
Uh, and then later on, as I got a little bit older, one of the greatest comic strips of all time uh, began to, uh, to, to be entered into the paper. My favorite comic strip, even to this day, uh, deep theological masterpiece of Calvin and Hobbes. Um, I actually have an example of one of uh, Calvin and Hobbes to kind of open us up this morning. Um, this is a scene that replays itself often uh, throughout Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip. Uh, there, there's uh, this common scene of Calvin being in the bed. His parents have told him to go to bed. Uh, but you see from the comic strip there, there's a problem. There are monsters under the bed. And this is the way the comic strip goes. The first frame there, Calvin leans over and kind of asks into the darkness, are there any monsters under my bed tonight? Of course, the response, nope. And his eyes get a little bit bigger. Third frame, if there were any monsters under my bed tonight, how big would they be? Very small. Go to sleep. <laughs> and then the final, uh, the final thing there, Mom! Whenever this played itself out at my house with my own young children, uh, I always typically responded with the one superpower that dads have. Uh, we, we don't have a lot going for us, but we do have one superpower. superpower. It's called dad logic. Uh, so when my kids would get to this last frame and they would scream out, Dad, what? There are monsters under the bed. Superpower. Monsters aren't real. Go to bed. And if you have young children, you know how well that worked. <laughs> um, so then they, after they called for dad, they would always call for mom. Uh, because mom always responded with what they really needed to begin with. Not dad's logic, but the comforting presence of a loving parent. If, if you have young children, if you've been around young children, you know what Calvin and Hobbes know. And that's that dad's logic isn't necessarily accurate. Because monsters are, in fact, real. Now, as we get older, we begin to call them by different names, right? Cancer, job loss, fear, anxiety, betrayal, divorce, bankruptcy. We call them by different names, but they're still these things that hide out in the dark under our bed, and we hear them whispering twisted truths to us. These monsters tend to hide out in the dark corners and crevices of our lives, and Calvin and Hobbes, and my children, and David, particularly in Psalm 27, the psalm that we're going to be looking at today, recognize the validity of those claims. In our text today from Psalm 27, uh, David's going to point out a few things to us. First, He's going to point out, like my kids, like Calvin and Hobbes, he's going to make the claim that monsters are, in fact, real. And they present a clear and present danger in our lives. Uh, the second thing David's going to point us to in this text from Psalm 27, he's going to make the claim that in spite of these very real monsters and concerns, he's going to claim that he's not afraid. And in our confusion of recognizing that monsters are, in fact, very real and you can face them without fear, the third and final thing David's going to do for us is he's going to point to how he got there. 
So that's the roadmap in front of us. If you will, open up your Bibles or turn on your devices that contain your Bibles. So I'm going to ask you to follow along with me. And there are only 14 verses here. I'm going to read through all 14 of them um, for a couple of different reasons. One, uh, this is the inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative word of God. And it's good for us to read it together. And then secondly, uh, I just want to make sure you know I'm not making any of this stuff up. It's from the text. Uh, So Psalm 27, I'm going to read through starting with verse 1, and then we'll pray together once again. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh... My adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter. In the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we approach this text together this morning. And we come together with generations of saints before us who confess the same thing. This is not merely a book about you. This is your revelation of yourself to your people. This is how you, this day, in this hour, in Knoxville, Tennessee, want us to know you, to know who you are, and to know how you move and live and breathe among us. So, Father, we pray that you would do that now, that you would move among us, that you would open up your word, that you would cause your words to spring forth from the page in life, in vitality, and that you would affect our lives with the truth of Scripture. God, mold us to your image, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So three things, again, that we're going to look at. David's going to acknowledge the reality of his circumstances. He's going to confess his confidence in the Lord in spite of that reality. And then he's going to show us how he got there. Uh, First point here, David's going to acknowledge his reality. Uh, One of the things I love about Scripture, one of the things I love particularly about the Psalms, is just the reality that it portrays. There's no Pollyanna-esque 
uh, kind of rose-colored glasses going on here. David is pointing to some very real struggles, just this raw realism. Verse 2, he says, evildoers assail me. He actually takes it a step further than most polite Southerners would take it in church. Not just that evildoers assail me. He's like, they're coming to devour me. They're going to eat up my flesh. I mean, it's one thing to have somebody coming after you. It's another thing to have somebody coming after you to consume you. Verse 3, he says, not just one person, but an army is camped against me. War rises up against me. Verse 5, he's confessing that there is actually something real that's called a day of trouble. Verse 6, he has enemies all around him. Verse 10, those closest to him, his mother and his father, turn their backs. Verse 12, folks be lying on David. False witness. For those of you um, like me who maybe have a warped enough sense of humor to appreciate this kind of thing, you may remember um, the cultural and cinematic masterpiece of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Um, and uh, there's, there's this one scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where Arthur, king of the Britons, uh, is on his quest, on his journey, and he comes across the Black Knight. The Black Knight is guarding the bridge and tells Arthur that they cannot pass. So a sword battle ensues, um, and during this sword battle, well, how can we put it in, in church on Sunday morning? Um, the Black Knight's arm is um, removed from his torso. Uh, and uh, Arthur, king of the Britons, seeing that the Black Knight's arm has been removed, thinks surely the battle is over now. Uh, so he says, good sir, do, do you yield? And of course, if you've seen the movie, you know the Black Knight's response. Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off. It's merely a flesh wound. A lot of time, especially in Christian circles, the whole idea of realism before God or before one another, for that matter, it's kind of a foreign concept. Because after all, we're Christians, and real Christians that love Jesus enough don't have real problems, right? As a matter of fact, some of us would take it so far as to, to believe that Christians with visible problems are simply revealing the fact that they're inferior Christians, and you don't want to walk around with your inferiority just all hanging out like that, right? So here's what we end up doing. Like the black knight, we pretend that the problems just aren't there. Like Calvin and Hobbes, we end up pulling the covers up over our head and just huddling and screaming. And we pretend that if we don't acknowledge that the monsters are real, then the damage they cause doesn't really exist either. And we just go on pretending like everything's okay. And we have churches, and we have homes, and we have families, and we have neighborhoods, and we have communities filled with people walking around with gaping wounds, holding their intestines in their hands. Some of them saying, it's merely a flesh wound. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. Yeah, but your gut's bloody. It's merely a flesh man. Why is it that the Christian church oftentimes sounds so much more like the Black Knight in Monty Python than we do David in the Psalms? And yet somehow here, David is able, 
in Psalm 27 to bring the reality of his suffering before the Lord. He's able to name it. And rather than leading to some inferiority complex or a break in his relationship with God, why can't we be honest with God with our struggles? Do we feel like he's going to be ashamed of us because we struggle? Some of us have some daddy issues we need to work out with our Lord. Are you able to bring the reality of your situation before the God of the universe, who, by the way, knows your struggles already, knows your monsters, knows the way that you struggle with whispers from under your bed? Can we come before our Lord and can we come before one another? And can we openly confess, like David does in Psalm 27, the reality of our situation? So the first thing David does is he's just honest. He confesses his reality before the Lord. Second thing David does here is in light of that reality, David actually confesses his confidence in the Lord. Look back at verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David confesses his confidence in the Lord, and then he asks twice, who I got to be afraid of? I don't know, maybe the folks that are coming after you to devour your flesh? I mean, that'd be where I would start. Verse 2, when my, enemy, when my enemies come against me, they're the ones who will stumble and fall. Verse 3, even though armies are encamped against me, my heart shall not fear. Even though war rises against me, I am confident. And this isn't some pie-in-the-sky, sweet-by-and-by theology where David's saying, yeah, my enemies are going to come against me. They're probably going to kill me. But then again, I'll just wake up in heaven and everything will be fine there. That's not what David's saying at all. Look, look at what he says in verse 13. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This is not sweet by and by pie in the sky theology. This is real, solid comfort for people in the midst of their struggle here, like us. What and what is David saying he's confident of here? A couple of things I want to point out uh, just in this kind of, I guess, A and B of, of part two here. Uh, the first thing I want, to notice, I want us to notice is the sure confidence that David is displaying. Like, look at the surety with which he speaks. My enemies will stumble and fall. I will be confident. The Lord will hide me in his shelter. He will conceal me. He, my head will be lifted up. I will offer sacrifices. I will sing. I will look. David's deliverance hasn't even happened yet. And yet he's speaking about a future reality of, as if it's already broken into the here and the now. That's faith. The second thing I want to point out here is not just the confidence that he's speaking with, but he's, he's speaking in a way, in a sense, uh, somewhat passively, Two, David doesn't say, I'm going to hide. What does he say? The Lord will hide me. He doesn't say, I'm going to conceal myself. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He, he doesn't say, I'm gonna, hey, I'm going to climb up on this rock by myself. No, he says, the Lord will place me high up on a rock. Growing up uh, in the middle of the country, like I did, um, we had... My uncle had a ton of land, um, and uh, the whole family had access to it. So I, I had the best 
playmate growing up that any young boy could ever have. I mean, the closest friend, the greatest co-adventurer, it was my granddad. And um, we spent all fall and winter in the woods, whether it was squirrel hunting, deer hunting, uh, dove hunting. Uh, my kids love me telling stories about how I grew up eating squirrel. Um, uh, so we would sit in the dove fields, and we would just talk, and, you know, a large portion of the reason that I don't have significant, uh, you know, 100% hearing today is all due to South Alabama doves and squirrels. Um, uh, but we would do that during the summer. We would spend countless hours just walking through the woods, playing in creeks, fishing, doing all of these things. And I think, I mean, as a young boy, you're kind of, you're kind of vaguely aware that um, you're in the middle of the woods, uh, and there are snakes, there are coyotes, there are panthers in South Alabama. Occasionally we'll have, you know, a random black bear that breaks out of Smoky Mountain National Park and wanders its way down through South Alabama. Uh, but there are all of these dangers out in the woods. And I think as a young boy, I was vaguely aware that these things existed. But I'm, I'm about to turn 46. And I do not remember a day that I ever experienced fear in my grandfather's presence. Now, part of that was because wherever he went, if we were in the woods, I knew that there was a 38 special in his back pocket. So that, that might have been part of it. Um, but I, I, like I never remember being afraid in my grandfather's presence. And it's not because I thought that as an eight-year-old, you know, whatever comes out of the woods at us, I got this. I was not confident in my own ability to deal with what came at us. I just knew that whatever came at us, he could handle it. David, in this text, is not saying that I'm just that awesome. He's saying the Lord is. So whenever whatever came at us, I knew my granddad could handle it. You know what I concentrated on as an eight-year-old boy? Playing. And I wonder why we as the church aren't more playful. Why are we not more fun? Why are we not kinder? Why are we not more relaxed? And I think in part it's because we are, so, we are wound so tight at attempting to control our own environment, but because we don't believe that either God is big enough to handle our monsters or that he's interested enough to. So we feel like it's all on our own shoulders and we've got to handle it all. And some of us are so exhausted from fighting so hard and we work and we strive and we fight and we struggle and we sweat and we bleed and we cry and we rail against the monsters that rise up against us. And in, in the end, we still feel defeated and we're like, God, I, I don't know what else to do. I'm, I'm, I'm reciting every memory verse I know. I'm going to the scriptures. I'm reading devotionals by people, you know, dead European guys I've never even heard of. I even listened to what Tim Keller and Al Mohler had to say about this. And I still can't figure out why I'm still struggling because we're trying to control it all by ourselves. And here's what David's pointing us to here. Fighting with all of your strength is a completely insufficient strategy because your strength is completely insufficient. And mine is too. So we need to repent. 
Repentance is not merely changing our behavior. Repentance includes a behavior change, but repentance isn't merely changing our behavior. Repentance is a change in the God that we worship. And some of us, and I say us because I am you, some of us are so tied up in knots within ourselves because we have placed ourselves on the throne of our lives and we think we're in charge and we should be able to handle it. You know what that's called? Idolatry. It's a worship of self. It's a worship of our own abilities. We're placing our faith not in our Lord. We're placing our faith in ourselves, in our ability to outline and game plan and handle whatever comes at us. And David is saying here in this text, he's pointing out to us that he's confident not because he has the tools and the resources to handle what's coming at him, but that God does. And maybe you're here today and you're thinking, man, I, I really do. I mean, I see Preacher, I see what you're pointing at. Like, I see it from the text. I see how it works for David. But David is one of those biblical characters that's living on a flannel graph in front of us. I'm not really sure I know how to take what's happening with David and work it out in the reality of my own life. And that leads us to the third point here. Here's how David gets there. He's going to show us the path that he walks. Look back with me at verse 4. David says, One thing I've asked of the Lord... One thing that I will seek after. What's David's one thing here? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David seems to be saying here that the one thing he wants is to dwell here and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. To dwell and to gaze. To dwell and to gaze. To dwell. I um, drove up yesterday from uh, Birmingham and uh, got into town uh, last night, got to the hotel uh, that I was staying at. And, and I've been with my new job with, with Thrive, and I do a little bit more traveling than I ever did as a local pastor. So about every six to eight weeks or so, I'm, at another, I'm in another city at some pastor's conference or church conference. Um, I mean, every Southern Baptist on the planet seems to be coming to Birmingham next week to the convention there, so we'll be there at the Civic Center. Uh, but a lot of times, I'm staying in hotels. And um, I was in a hotel room last night here in Knoxville, and it was a perfectly adequate hotel. It was actually a really nice hotel room, but it had a bed. Uh, it had a bathroom. It had the most important thing that a hotel room can have, a coffee pot, um, especially if you want a preacher to come on Sunday morning. I think it's got to be a coffee pot. I'll make a pallet on the floor, but please make sure there's a coffee pot in there. So, like, it was a perfectly adequate hotel room. It met every need I had. But you know what hotel rooms are built for? For visiting, not for dwelling. If you had to live in a hotel room long term, that would get old. Hotels are great to visit short term, but they're not really built for dwelling. There was, y'all, I was just there a couple of hours ago this morning. I, I remember that there was one picture hanging on the wall in the bedroom, and there was one picture hanging on the wall in the living room. I could not tell you what those pictures were of. I can't tell you the major color scheme in the picture. 
because hotel room art is meant for glancing and taking up space on a wall. Vincent Van Gogh's Starry Night. Most of you have an image in your head. I cannot tell you what the pictures on the wall were in my hotel room last night. But I can vividly picture in my mind Van Gogh's Starry Night. Why is that? Because hotel rooms are great for visiting, but they're really bad for long-term dwelling. And hotel room art is great for glancing at. A Van Gogh is built for gazing. David says one thing. One thing I want to do. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. And I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. To dwell and to gaze. To dwell and to gaze. And sometimes I am so busy glancing at the Lord that I'm not able to gaze at Him. And sometimes I'm so tempted to visit with the Lord. Especially when life gets rough. But we're not called to visit. We're called to dwell. We're not called to glance. We're called to gaze. If we look through Psalm 27 as a whole, there's a lot of temple, tent, tabernacle, house of the Lord type language. You've got house of the Lord and temple in verse 4. Verse 5 there, you've got a reference to the Lord's tent. Verse 6, you've got David offering to make sacrifices in the Lord in the Lord's tent. What, what's going on in Psalm 27 with all, with all of this temple, tabernacle, tent language? In, in the tent of, uh, in the midst of the temple, uh, you have the Holy of Holies. And within the Holy of Holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant. And within the Ark of the Covenant, you, on the top there, there's this lid, the top of the box. And right in the center, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, this is called the mercy seat. And in Exodus 25, God tells Moses that that mercy seat there, that's where I'm going to meet with you. That's where I'm going to converse with you. That's where I'm going to talk with you. This was the epicenter of communion between God and man. And one day out of the year, on the day of atonement, one man from among Israel, the high priest, is able to enter into the Holy of Holies. And he's able to approach the mercy seat where the presence of God dwelled. And he's able to make atoning blood sacrifice for the sins of all of the people for the entire year. The place where God dwells with men and blood sacrifice is made for atonement. This is what's being pointed to here. So you've got, um, you've got the world You've got Israel, you've got Jerusalem, you've got the temple, you've got the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat where the presence of God dwells and where blood sacrifice makes atonement for the people. And what David is telling us here with all of this temple tabernacle language in Psalm 27 is that the way to have confidence in the Lord, the way to have relationship continuing with the Lord, even in the midst of very real monsters and struggle and pain, is to make our consistent 
home, not our visitation place, but our consistent home to take up permanent residence, to gaze unswervingly into not just the physical temple, but into the very place where God makes his presence known to men through blood sacrifice. How do we do that? What the tabernacle was to the wandering Exodus community what the temple was to the Old Testament people of God, the person of Jesus is to us. Jesus himself pointed at the temple and said, tear it down, I'll rebuild it in three days. And we know he wasn't talking about rebuilding the actual building because Jesus himself is our temple. So what is David pointing us to here in this passage to gaze into and to dwell with? We're to dwell with the person of Jesus who makes atoning blood sacrifice for us on the cross. That's where we dwell. We don't just visit him there on Sundays. We don't just visit him when our life is really jacked up and we really need a supernatural helping hand. That's where we dwell. And we don't just gaze at Jesus, like glance up every now and then, like a toddler that runs about five steps in front of their parent. And every now and then they kind of glance over just to kind of make sure they're still there because uh, they're not really sure they can get that much further away. That, that's so much how we live and walk with Jesus so often. That's not what we're called to. We're called to dwell and we're called to gaze upon his beauty. One thing I will seek after that I may dwell in the presence of Jesus all the days of my life, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the presence of Jesus. Do we dwell with Jesus? Or do we visit him every now and then in hard times? Do we gaze upon the beauty of Jesus? Is Jesus functional for us or is he beautiful to us? It's going to determine how we worship. Because if Jesus is functional for us, we're going to treat him like some sky vending machine. And if we put the correct coinage in, we can get out what we need. That's not the image that Scripture paints of God. Jesus is not merely functional. He's glorious. And he's beautiful. One of the things I love about the way that the worship service is set up this morning is that uh, as we close, we have the remainder of our time together to do these two things as our primary application point, to dwell with Jesus, to gaze into his beauty. So even today, during this next period of time, as we're singing Let's use this together to gaze and to dwell. As you approach the table at the back of the room and you see the bread broken and the the juice that is spilled out, let that be a reminder to you that Jesus is beautiful. His flesh was broken so that you will not be. His blood was spilled so that yours will not be. All of God's wrath, all of God's wrath, I'm going to say it again because we don't really believe it. All of God's wrath is poured out fully on Jesus on the cross for those that are in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? You know what's beautiful? When God looks at you, there is no more wrath. Too many of us view God standing With his back turned, his arms crossed, I cannot believe they did that again. I cannot believe that they are that dumb 
that they are that fractured, that they are that broken. And you know what that's called? Heresy. Because here's what Scripture says. There is no extra bucket of wrath that God is hiding in a back closet waiting to pour out on you. If you are in Christ, his wrath has been fully poured out on Jesus. And as we approach the table and as we look at the bread that's broken and the wine and the juice that's spilled and poured out, that is a horrific, beautiful reminder that God's wrath is satisfied. And as we look at Jesus' life throughout Scripture, how pleasing was Jesus to God? Ultimately pleasing. And when God looks at us, you know who he sees? He sees Jesus. So not only is there no wrath to pour out, the only thing God has for us is his people to pour out on us for those who are in Christ Jesus is pleasure, satisfaction. This is my child, too, in whom I am well pleased. Not because they've got it all together, but because they're in my son and I love my son. So I will have no more wrath for them and I will have only love for them. Now, is there discipline? Of course. Discipline and love are not antonyms. We love our children. We discipline them. It doesn't mean that God is not pleased with us because what we do or what we don't do don't earn God's pleasure. Christ's work earns God's pleasure. So what do we do? We play. We live in light of the love that's poured out over us. We'll end here with the way that David ends in this final verse. He says in verse 14, Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's wait on him together in prayer. Father, we thank you for your inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word. God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see. We pray that you would give us faith to believe. And God, we pray that you would enable us by your power and your might and the indwelling presence of your spirit. God, we pray that you would enable us to gaze into your beauty, to dwell with you. And Father, we pray that in the remainder of our time together, you would be glorified and your kingdom would be impacted. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.